0: Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Welcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. It starts like flu, you feel tired, your muscles hurt, you have a headache and your temperature rises. Sometimes there's backache and nausea too, sometimes not. After around two weeks, lesions appear in the mouth and throat. They swell and erupt, releasing the virus into your body. Then the red rash begins, first on the forehead and then spreading everywhere else. Within a day and a half your body is covered. Millions upon millions upon millions of lives have ended this way. And over the centuries, many well-known figures were thought to have suffered from smallpox too. From Abraham Lincoln, who had it during his famous Gettysburg Address, to Mozart and even Elizabeth I. This is the story of smallpox and the invention of the vaccine. Dean Patton we're returning to you to open this episode today. What object do you have for us from sick to death?
1: So it's not a small object this week it's a huge object it's probably the biggest one in the collection which is the building itself so this is St Michael's Church Ooh. and that's the building where sick to death is based in the middle of Chester.
0: Okay why? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the church is important because of its parishioners who were in the 18th century they took part in an experiment whether they knew it at the time or not there was a physician called john haygarth and he was looking to explore whether inoculation was a way to eradicate smallpox so he did a bit of a, a pioneer test and trace if you like on the parishioners of st michael's in chester And his work led to a 50 reduction in smallpox cases in chester you know kind of symbolic location in the eradication of smallpox in the uk
0: John Hagarth was part of a long line of medics, healers and concerned individuals who for millennia had sought to diminish the effects of smallpox.
1: Smallpox, I think because we don't see it at all now, we can we can forget just how horrific it, it was and also how long it had plagued humanity for.
0: That's Owen Gower, historian and museum manager at Dr Jenner's house.
1: I mean, we, we think that it affected humanity for well over a thousand years the first clear and obvious descriptions are around the year 400 but but there's possible references to it maybe even some 1500 years before that and we do think of it now as as being a a really horrific disease it killed 300 million people in the in the 20th century and if you caught it you had a i guess a 30% chance of of dying from it and if you survived then you had Perhaps a one in three chance of being left with lifelong scarring—the the characteristic, very deep pock marks that gave the disease its its name. But before that kind of modern understanding of it, it being caused by a virus or two strains of of the variola virus. There were all these different understandings of, of what caused it, which, of course, tie into to the general understandings of medical ailments and principles at the time. So there was one school of thought that, that believed it came from a, a deity of some sort and, and was something that needed to be endured. There was another school of thought that perhaps said that it was a result of miasma or um, the body's way, perhaps, of, of just eliminating some built-up waste. And... In a similar vein, I think there was a 10th-century Persian physician called Al-Razi who believed that everyone was born with smallpox. It was just there in the in the blood, and gradually it built up. And when it reached a critical level, the body decided it had to just expel it, and that was what caused the the eruptions, the the pustules. And then, of course, there was the Galenic principle, the the humoral imbalance. And and I think that. Your way of treating it depended very much on, on what view you subscribe to. So, as I say, you might just endure it thinking that it is a visitation from from a god and that by enduring it, suffering, you would you would be pleasing that, that deity. Others felt that perhaps you should almost encourage it because it was that that allowed the body to expel the waste. And then others felt that you had to treat the individual to to restore that humoral imbalance so we, we see lots and lots of different ways of of treating and I, I use the term treating very loosely really with 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 these um, so the going back to al Razi the the tenth century Persian physician. Uh, He was an advocate of bleeding, he was an advocate of refraining from eating melons whilst you had smallpox, and and he also advocated excessive sweating, trying to to draw out the fever. One of his contemporaries, Al-Majusi, suggested, he went even further to encourage it, he said that you should prick all of the the pustules with a very fine needle and then rub salt into the the resulting wounds. And this sounds truly horrific, it must have been extremely painful and distressing. And yet it was still being practiced in England right up until the 1300s. So these these techniques tended to, to travel around, really. In Japan, they believed that the color red would drive away the demons that were responsible for smallpox. And in England, again, in the 1300s, they started to practice the use of Red fabric. So there's one royal physician who talked about treating the King of England's son by just filling his bedroom with lots of cloth that was red and pillows that were red and cushions that were red. And some people even took this further and suggested that the body should be really tightly bound in really fine red cloth as a way of, of again, just, just helping the, the infection to pass.
0: There are records of many well-known figures using the colour red as well as binding in their treatment. But perhaps the most famous of all is Queen Elizabeth I.
2: Well, there weren't many ideas of what to do about smallpox, which possibly is a good thing, because sometimes in the 16th century, it's best if the doctor doesn't see you.
0: That's Professor Kate Williams, royal historian and author of Rival Queens. What they did do is they wrapped her in a scarlet cloth
2: And the idea was that the red light would heal the rash. And, you know, it's a bit like an infrared light, really, isn't it? The way we might use an infrared light now or an infrared light zapper to, to cure ourselves. That's what they did then. And what they also had, I mean, this is a very sad story, is that the problem is that smallpox is so virulent. And she had a nurse, Lady Mary Sydney, who was a lady, who was a nurse. She gave Elizabeth these teas, soothed her brow and really sacrificed herself because Lady Mary Sidney, she got it very badly and she was very, very disfigured. Elizabeth did have smallpox scars that we think are not really recorded on her portraits. She did have quite bad smallpox scars, but Mary Sidney was very, very disfigured by it. And really, I think we can say that although the red cloth didn't do that much, what did, I think, make Elizabeth the cover? was the fact that she had her friend, her lady, this devoted nurse who really sacrificed her own health and beauty to nurse the Queen.
0: Elizabeth was lucky to have such an attentive maid. Many medical practices reserved for the wealthy did more harm than good.
1: Smallpox, I think, was was a disease of rich and and poor alike. And it's interesting that, that Thomas Sydenham in the 1600s noted that actually the mortality rate of people who had contracted smallpox and then went on to die was was much higher amongst the rich than the poor. And he theorised, quite correctly I should think, that it was the treatments that were being prescribed by the rich doctors that were actually causing this excess mortality amongst smallpox sufferers in in the, the upper classes. And so Sydenham suggested that actually you kind of track back on it and you go back to a, a more basic form his his cold therapy for for smallpox which still sounds quite extravagant you had to have a fluid based diet you had to be kept very very cold no fires windows open but also there was lots of purgatives lots of bleeding and all those different things so still very much tied into that galenic principle so throughout history they've tried to treat smallpox but have consistently found that actually it doesn't really improve outcomes that much. It doesn't really work. And I think it's telling that even in modern medicine, if smallpox were around now, which it, it isn't, there isn't really much that, that modern medicine could, could do beyond just making making the, the patients comfortable and keeping them hydrated and, and fluids, much as Thomas Sydenham was, was trying to do. So it's something that, that we've never really worked out how to how to treat but it is something that we can prevent and so as well as treatment again for perhaps a thousand years or so uh, people in in asia parts of the middle east parts of africa were practicing a treatment which which can only really be described as controlled contraction of of smallpox they were deliberately infecting themselves with smallpox in order to provoke immunity against it. So they they worked out that those who had contracted smallpox would never contract smallpox again, or if they did, it would be a very mild infection. And so they they thought, well, let's try and infect ourselves with a, a mild dose now so that we don't then get a much worse case later on. Uh, And so this was practised in a variety of different ways, depending on the the local custom. Some people would scratch the pus from the smallpox blisters into the skin. Others would crush up the, the scabs from people who had had smallpox, which were in fact incredibly contagious themselves, and try and inhale them, breathe them in. And this would provoke what was hopefully a mild case of smallpox, but as it developed you would see how the body reacted to it and it was hoped that you would make a quick recovery that you wouldn't have any of the the telltale pop marks the scarring and that you would be safe from smallpox for, for life. And so this practice was quite common in certain parts of the world, and started to become introduced to Western medicine in the 1700s. So it was brought to America in 1706 by an enslaved person called Onesimus, so that was the name that it was given to him. And his slave-owning master, the, the, the Reverend Cotton Mather in 1721 used this technique that he had learnt from Onesimus to try and persuade people in the States to be inoculated, to, to be protected against smallpox by deliberate infection.
3: Smallpox was associated with a class of deities who were known as quote-unquote kings of the land, who were in charge of ancestral ties to land, geopolitical control of land.
0: That's Elise Mitchell, historian of Caribbean and Atlantic slavery, gender and medicine at New York University.
3: And fertility for the land as well as for people. And anybody who wanted to rule certain parts of, of West Africa, particularly the interior regions, had to first get usufunctory rights from these deities, according to a historian, Edna Bay. And so... As the slave trade sort of picks up over the course of the 17th century, you start to see these groups of people move within the West African context. And as they move out to the coast and as they sort of get swept up into the slave trade, the tradition follows them. And so in the Americas, you have a number of enslaved people who arrive in in North America and Boston, as well as New York, and are dealing with these smallpox outbreaks and start to mention to the folks who are enslaving them or talking amongst themselves about how outbreaks of the severity do not happen where they're from. And you have a few accounts of different Englishmen sort of writing about how they overheard enslaved people talking about inoculation, then inquired with them more about it, or in some cases, enslaved people spoke about it more openly. But then as you get into the later 18th century, because through the invention of the vaccination, you have a number of British physicians who are arriving and asking enslaved Africans about inquiring with them about their medical knowledge, asking them about inoculation, asking them about vaccination or encountering resistance from them as they're trying to sort of reintroduce their version of the practice. And West Africans are responding, particularly in physician James Thompson's narrative, saying that they've been practicing smallpox inoculation since before anyone could remember. In some cases in Thompson's narrative, he says that they've been practicing it since before the time of Islam. And so if you follow the religious tradition that and spiritual traditions that went along with the practice, they're all attached to this very, very ancient class of deities that trace back to the period of antiquity. Now, that's not to say that we, like, we don't have the evidence to say necessarily that West Africans were practicing smallpox inoculation for that long. But the fact that that suggestion is there and the fact that, you know, this is a practice that in, in the French records, because you have a number of descriptions of West Africans practicing smallpox inoculation, West Africans from the same places that the West Africans in the British Caribbean were hailing from, talking about the fact that they'd been practicing this since before anyone could remember, like since Temp immemorial. So it was a very old tradition in West Africa at the time that folks were enslaved and brought to the Caribbean.
1: In England, Lady Mary Wortley Montague had witnessed the practice in, in Turkey. She brought it back with her. She had contracted smallpox herself when she was younger, so she wanted to see her children protected from it. So she, she had them inoculated, infected with smallpox, and then she brought the practice back to, to England. And through a series of, of experiments involving prisoners in, in Newgate Jail, which don't sound particularly pleasant, she was able to convince the Princess of Wales and other high society ladies to to take up this practice and to have their own children infected with smallpox. And it became known as inoculation, uh, which is the Latinized way of saying engrafting, which is how Lady Mary Wortley Montague had heard it described in Turkey. So it did work. We we know it worked, but also it was risky. There were many different dangers, primarily that that people react to the virus in different ways. So you couldn't guarantee you were going to get a a mild dose. There's also the the issue that you've got the risk of secondary infection from the means of of scratching it into the skin. Um, But perhaps most concerning from a public health point of view is that those who had contracted smallpox through variolation, through inoculation, were just as contagious as those who had contracted smallpox naturally but they felt that they were safe they of course they were safe so they were just walking around and there were a number of smallpox outbreaks caused by people who had been inoculated spreading the disease to to other people in a natural setting and provoking a a more severe reaction which which ultimately led to to people contracting full-blown smallpox and and some people dying so it worked but it, it wasn't without its problems and that's where Edward Jenner comes in. Born in
0: 1749 to a clergyman and his wife in Gloucestershire England, Edward Jenner was the eighth of nine children. He attended a nearby grammar school and then at the age of 13 was apprenticed to a local surgeon before becoming a pupil of the renowned surgeon John Hunter at St George's Hospital London. After his training he set himself up in Gloucestershire as a country doctor. He was practising in a world blighted by smallpox, with many contemporaries, most notably John Haygarth mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, working to find ways to reduce the disease's impact. Aside from a couple of important papers relating to zoology, something Jenner had a keen interest in, in many ways his life had been fairly typical for someone of his background and training.
4: That was, of course, until his breakthrough. He was very interested in smallpox as most people in the medical community were because, again, it was killing large numbers of people.
0: That's Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, medical historian and author of The Butchering Art.
4: Jenner comes along, and what he notices in the countryside is that the dairymaids never really catch smallpox, and he begins to wonder why. Now, dairymaids, when they're milking cows, became exposed to something called cowpox. There's a lot of poxes in this story, by the way. So cowpox is very mild. It's uh, generally not dangerous, but humans can catch it from farm animals. And what he noticed was the dairymaids were catching cowpox, developing this mild, relatively harmless virus. And then they were recovering and they were not catching smallpox. So he reckoned that catching cowpox conferred some kind of immunity onto the person. So what he starts to do is he takes matter from the cowpox and he starts injecting it into patients. They develop cowpox and then he exposes them to smallpox and he realizes they are not catching it. This is a huge leap forward in our understanding of immunity and of course saving thousands of lives in his own time.
0: The story of how Jenner tried, tested and proved his theories is perhaps one of the most famous in all medical history. He scraped the pus from a milkmaid's cowpox spots and administered them to an eight-year-old son of his gardener, who became immune and survived. It's therefore surprising, perhaps, from a 21st century standpoint, to learn that Jenner's discovery was
4: not universally admired. It's hugely important, especially when you think about today with the anti-vaxxer movement growing. And I have to say that Edward Jenner faced these opposition in his own time in the early 19th century. Some of the biggest anti-vaxxer movements happened. And their fears, these people's fears about the vaccination, wasn't that different to the reasons some people fear today. One of the biggest worries was that the doctor was taking infected material from a dirty farm animal and injecting it into humans. And so you get all these cartoons that pop up at this time of, uh, you know, the patients sort of developing bovine characteristics or turning into a cow. And I think that's really interesting because it also speaks to our fears around medicine, our misunderstanding of scientific progress. Jenner faces all of this, but Jenner never leaves the shores of his own country. And yet he makes this huge impact worldwide. He sends his vaccine, for instance, to Napoleon, who vaccinates his own army. He sends it to the king of Spain, who is able to vaccinate large portions of the Spanish Empire. He sends it to Thomas Jefferson. So there's all of this impact of his discovery. And of course, it spurred the field of immunology and and our understanding of how diseases spread and how we can confer immunity. And that's more important than ever as we're battling the coronavirus. Jenner's vaccination was used extensively in French occupied
0: Italy and also made its way to Newfoundland, Canada.
1: But also it didn't Result in a cataclysmic change in the way in which diseases were were thought of or, or treated or, or indeed prevented, and it was nearly another hundred years before the the next vaccine came along so in terms of the the spread of of vaccination there are kind of many different issues in terms of availability of the of the live virus because you had to have a supply of cowpox virus you couldn't artificially create it at the time they, they hadn't worked out how to, to to do that so you had to have a reliable source of cowpox virus and you had to have someone that you could you could take that that source from and you had to have a way of of transporting it and you had to have a way of making sure that it was still stable it worked at the, the other end so so really that's one side of the development is the the technology that came into into that but Alongside this, there were also other discoveries. And the, the first one in terms of, of vaccines was in 1879, when it's a wonderful story. It's a, one of these accidental science moments. So Louis Pasteur had been working with his, his assistants on infecting chickens with chicken cholera, a bacterial disease. And they just wanted to look at how the chickens reacted, how the the disease progressed in these, these chickens. And so he asked his assistant, before he went on holiday, to inject a chicken with some live bacteria, live cholera, chicken cholera bacteria, so that they would be able to see how it reacted. But the assistant forgot. And then he went off on holiday, and then when he came back from holiday, he realised his mistake and tried to correct it, I think before Pasteur noticed, by infecting the, uh, the chicken with the chicken cholera. But what they realised was that this bacteria had been sitting around for a, a, quite a while, and the chickens did not react in the way that they were expected to. They had some symptoms, but they weren't as severe as they had expected. So when Pasteur then tried to inject them again with a, a freshly prepared solution, he found that actually they didn't react at all. And so he concluded that the exposure to the air had made the, made the bacteria somewhat weaker and that this had provoked an immune response, which meant that the chickens would not contract chicken cholera when it was given to them again. And so really we, we talk about that as being the first live weakened or attenuated vaccine and that was that was against chicken cholera but soon we were finding other solutions and, and and that kind of really started a bit of a race to find different vaccines so in 1885 for example we had the first human vaccine live attenuated cholera vaccine by Jaime Ferran as a spanish scientist pasteur at the same time was looking at rabies vaccines eventually they were looking at typhoid vaccines
0: Indeed between 1880 and 1897, along with cholera, rabies and typhoid, scientists had also discovered vaccines for tetanus and bubonic plague. The race to find more exploded in the 20th century with scarlet fever, polio, measles, mumps, rubella and hepatitis A among many others developed. More recently we've seen the discoveries of vaccines for influenza, malaria, ebola and with unprecedented speed several vaccinations against COVID-19.
1: We see now that there are about 26 different vaccines that are in routine use to protect people against some of the most feared diseases of history. Vaccines save between two and three million lives each and every year. And although Pasteur could have called his work anything that he, he wanted really, he chose to refer to it as vaccination in honour of Jenna because Jenna's Discovery of course had become known as vaccination after the Latin vacca for cow.
0: Of course, the discovery of the vaccine is only part of the story. In order for a disease to be eradicated, the vaccine needs to be globally and thoroughly implemented. We will return to how this finally happened with smallpox in the 20th century in our final episode. With thanks to today's guests, Owen Gower, Professor Kate Williams, Elise Mitchell and Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. This series was written, narrated and produced by myself, Rebecca Adil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry and was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org.